Well, good morning. Welcome to King's Cross. I'm Taylor, and I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, we've been walking through here week by week the gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark was written about two or three decades after the earthly life of Jesus by an early Christian. It was written really as an introduction to who Jesus is and an invitation to follow him. And so we're going to be in Mark chapters 11 and 12 today. If you need a Bible, there's a few on the little table in the back. You can grab one, keep it if you want, or put it back if you want. Uh, Mark 11 and 12, we're continuing to see what's happening with Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, all throughout Mark's gospel, Mark has been presented as the Messiah, or the king of God's kingdom. But he's also been saying that when he goes up to Jerusalem, he's going to run into trouble. The people are going to oppose him, eventually they're going to arrest him, and even kill him. And now, once he's gone up to Jerusalem, he's made this claim to be Messiah openly. We're getting into the teeth of that conflict. The last couple weeks... We've seen that Jesus lands the first blow. Uh, He comes into Jerusalem and he makes a clear and decisive demonstration claiming to be the Messiah. And then the next day, he goes into the temple, the center of the religious and national life of God's people. And he starts like throwing stuff around and making a scene and and calling out, exposing the religious leaders as corrupt, saying he's going to replace the whole religious system of the people with something new. And understandably, that ruffles the feathers of the religious authorities. So he comes back the next time to the temple, and this time they don't wait to see what he's going to do. They come to him. The religious leaders initiate the conversation. It's a conversation about authority. Who do you think you are, is what they're asking him. Who do you think gave you the authority to do the things that you're doing? You think you're better than us? This passage Mark eleven twenty seven through twelve seventeen is all about authority. We're going to see that Jesus is the ultimate authority of the church, that he's the ultimate authority of the individual, and that this is profoundly good news because he is a better authority than anyone or anything else. Mark 11, beginning in verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question, then answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd, because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, some they beat and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they'll respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. 
Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. This is the word of the Lord. Can you just feel the tension in that passage? The conflict is almost palpable. Jesus, as we said, threw the first punch the last couple of days, especially with his temple cleansing. But now his opponents, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders come up to him. Now it's their turn to go on offense. The chief priests, scribes, and elders here are representative of what's called the Sanhedrin, which was basically the highest ruling council over Jerusalem. It's made up of priests who were responsible for directing the worship of the people, scribes who were like expert theologians, and then elders who had ruling authority. These guys are are the big shots. They're like the judicial and executive and legislative branches of the U.S. government, but also with authority over your religious life. So somewhat understandably, when this rogue preacher from the backwater town of Nazareth shows up in Jerusalem during Passover and runs everybody out of the temple, they want to have a word with him. By what authority, they ask, are you doing these things? But Jesus, and this is genius of him, doesn't give them a straight answer. One of the things that Lindsay, my wife, and I learned during premarital counseling was that it's really important to understand how you engage conflict and how your spouse engages conflict. Like, are you the kind of person who runs to conflict as soon as it starts and you just want to like duke it out right there on the spot and get it over with? Or are you the kind of person who likes to kick the can down the road a little bit and maybe say, I'm too tired today, let's talk about this later, let's talk about this tomorrow or next week? Uh, whichever kind of person you are, one of the things I've realized is I don't think either kind of person is actually comfortable with conflict. The person who just wants to get it over with wants to get it over with so they can go back to being comfortable And the person who wants to delay it, wants to delay it in hopes that maybe it'll never happen and they can just go back to being comfortable. Jesus appears here to be perfectly comfortable in this conflict. He doesn't avoid it, but he doesn't try to rush through it either. He's calm and collected and cool-headed, and he follows up their question with one of his own. And in the process, he masterfully exposes just how fragile and full of fear their apparent authority was. Whose authority are you operating under, they ask him. And he basically says, whose authority was John the Baptist operating under? God's or man's? Now, if you remember back at the very beginning of Mark, we met John the Baptist. He was a prophet. He went out into the wilderness and he preached God's law and told people to repent and be baptized. And his whole ministry was about preparing the way for the Messiah, the one who would come next, which is Jesus. And so Jesus asked them this question. It seems like a simple question, right? Like, was John's ministry from God or from Humans, was he just coming up with his own stuff? But look what happens. Verse 31, they huddle up. They have to strategize. Uh, Apparently, their authority wasn't the only thing they held in common with the U.S. government. They're also really good at giving uh, non-answers to straightforward questions. And so they they do that. They recognize the dilemma they're in. If if they say, on the one hand, his authority was from God, they're afraid that Jesus is going to call him out and say, well, then why didn't you follow him? But if they say, on the other hand, that his authority was just from humanity, they think the people are going to turn on him because the people really like John. 
So they recognize in the moment how fragile their authority is, and instead of just being honest, what do they do? They punt. Verse 33, they say, we, we don't know. So Jesus says, well, if you don't answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. But then he, he turns and begins to teach them this parable. Now, it's in a different chapter in your Bible, so you may be tempted to think it's like a different setting, but there's no change of scenery, there's no change of audience. It appears that this parable is really his answer to their question. He talks about, and this is one of the more clear and straightforward parables that Jesus tells, he talks about a man planting a vineyard. Now, some of the language that he uses has clear Old Testament connotations. The temple leaders, who knew their Bibles well, would have heard him talking, and their minds would have gone to some Old Testament passages, specifically Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5 talks about God planting a vineyard, and the vineyard being his people, Israel. It says, the one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem, men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant that he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. The audience of Jesus here would have known this passage. They would have heard it in the back of their minds as he's talking. God is the man who plants the vineyard. Israel, Jerusalem, God's people are the vineyard. It says God leases the vineyard to tenant farmers. Jesus is saying that God appointed leaders over his people, and they were supposed to tend to it and care for it. And then he, he sent messengers to the vineyard. We should think here of Old Testament prophets, the last of whom is John the Baptist. And how did the farmers receive the prophets? They didn't listen to them. Jesus says in the parable that they didn't send back any fruit to God. Instead, they rejected the prophets. And in some cases, they hurt them. And in some cases, they even killed them. And historically, that, that is true. That's what happens to the Old Testament prophets. So finally, the farmer sends his son. God sends his son. And the parable is very clear. They're asking Jesus, by what authority do you do the things that you're doing? And he says, I come with the authority of my father. I have the same authority that God has. He says, this is not your vineyard. This is my vineyard. You are mere stewards. One of my favorite scenes in the Lord of the Rings movies is when Gandalf challenges Denethor, the steward of Gondor, and in the history of, of Gondor, the last king disappeared and left no known heir. So the stewards, who initially served the kings, began reigning in the place of the kings. And this happens for, for many, many generations. Uh, but if you know the story of the Lord of the Rings, you know that, that Aragorn, one of the main characters, is the rightful heir to the throne of Gondor. And, and Denethor, the steward, knows that. He should be grateful about it, right? He should know his place. He should be excited about the return of the king. But he's not. Instead, he's jealous He's full of fear. He recognizes, like the temple leaders, the fragility of his authority. He sees that it's slipping through his grasp. And so he says to Gandalf, I know what you're doing. Do you think I haven't seen it? He says, I know who rides with Theoden of Rohan. Word has reached my ears of this Aragorn. And he says, I tell you now, I will not bow to him. And how does Gandalf respond? Of course, he responds epically. He says, authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a steward. In fact, being a steward is a high calling. 
At, at my ordination service into ministry, my pastor preached from 1 Corinthians, and he spent a good deal of time on 1 Corinthians 4, which says that ministers of the gospel are stewards. Being a steward is a high calling, but stewardship is not ultimate authority. Stewards are accountable to somebody else. Stewards are accountable to kings. Being called a steward is only an insult to those who have delusions of authority that is much greater than what they actually have. Denethor refused to be accountable to the rightful king of Gondor, just as the temple leaders here refused to be accountable to their rightful king, Jesus. So what did they do to him? What do the farmers in the parable do to the son? They say, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. And indeed, they will do that. In just a few chapters, these temple leaders will kill Jesus. Jesus concludes his parable <clears throat> by quoting a psalm. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He doesn't say it clearly in the parable. He keeps it kind of cryptic by quoting the psalm. But what Jesus is saying is what he's already said which is that once they kill me in Jerusalem, I'm not going to stay dead. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. And this stone, the one that the authorities rejected, will become the most important stone in the whole building, the one who holds all things together. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, rejected but raised from the dead, is the sole and ultimate authority of God's people. He's the ultimate authority of the church. Ephesians 1.20 says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church. Christ is the sole authority of the church. Do you know what this means for us? It means that you aren't the head of the church. <laughs> you come here, King's Cross as a member, as an attendee, to serve other people, to be served by other people. If you're a member, you, you even have a, a measure of responsibility, authority, but it's an authority of stewardship. Nobody here owns this church. This is Christ's church. He's the head of this church. It also means, it may sound funny to say this, but we have to, that your, your favorite celebrity Christian influencer is not the authority of this church. One of the weirdest things about ministry in the sort of digital and social media age is that everybody does this thing where we, we pick out our favorite like celebrity Christian and we go to them for their opinions on everything from the finer points of theology to whether we should get vaccines for COVID. And then we go to church and we hold our pastors accountable to what that person on the internet said. And if, they, if, if our pastors don't do what they said, we fire them by going to a different church and find a pastor who will tell us what that person believes. As if it's the job of church leaders to tell you everything that you already agreed with. To affirm everything that you already believe. No, it's the job of the pastors of the church to tell you what Christ has said in his word. Because Christ is the head of the church. This also means that even those pastors and leaders who are called to tell you what Christ says are not the ultimate authority of the church. This is not my church. It's not Clint's church. It's not Nathan's church. None of us died for this church. Christ did. This church belongs to him. Again, we are stewards of it. Your favorite online celebrity Christian is not even a steward of it. You don't owe that person any submission. But your pastors are stewards of this church, and it's our job as stewards to lead you together under God's word. 
Now, submission to Christ alone, to be clear, does not mean getting like a only God can judge me tattoo, which really just means uh, nobody ever is allowed to tell me that I'm doing anything wrong, right? That's not what it means. Uh, Submission to Christ means submission to his word. Christ rules the church through scripture, inspired by his spirit pointing in every place to him. He is not going to give us instructions as a church. He's not going to give you instructions as an individual that aren't already in his word. So Christ is the sole authority of the church. He's also the sole authority of the individual. We see this in the next encounter. Some Herodians and Pharisees come up to Jesus. Now, Herodians were Jews who supported the rule and the policies of Herod, who was a Rome-appointed leader. So Herodians were pro-Rome. Pharisees, on the other hand, were allegedly opposed to Rome. They were a Jewish reform group that resisted the blending of Jewish culture with other cultures and that opposed Roman occupation. So it's very interesting, isn't it, that these two groups on opposite ends of the political spectrum can come together to try to trap Jesus. They have the same common enemy. They're sent by the Sanhedrin, verse 13 tells us. So this whole thing makes very clear what the end of verse 13 says explicitly. They were trying to trap Jesus in his words. That, that word trap is a word that is usually used in hunting contexts. It's quite literally, they're, they're trying to lay a trap for Jesus and, and snare him in his words. So they ask him this question that starts this famous dialogue, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Now again, Jerusalem is under Roman occupation, so Rome charges them taxes. And they're asking him, is that right or should we oppose it? Basically, they're trying to put Jesus in a position where he's either pro-Rome or pro-Zealot. If he says you should give Caesar the taxes, it's going to seem like he's pro-Rome and and he might lose his Jewish audience, right? The Jewish crowds following him might turn on him. But if he says don't pay the taxes, then they're going to lump him in with this radical group called Zealots and Rome is going to see him as an insurrectionist and a terrorist and they're going to put him to death. So they're trying to get him to to put himself in one of these two groups, but how does he respond? Verse 15 says, knowing their hypocrisy, in other words, all the sucking up that they did in verse 14, we know you're truthful, and you teach the way of God truthfully. He saw right through that. And knowing their hypocrisy, he does the same thing he just did in the last encounter. Instead of answering their question, he asks them one of his own. Give me a denarius, Jesus says. A denarius is a coin is worth about a day's wages, a couple hundred bucks in today's money. It included the head of Caesar on it. And on one side, the words Tiberius Caesar, son of God, and on the other side, high priest. That's language that is, that is uh, rampantly idolatrous to the Jewish mind. For anybody else to be claiming to be the son of God and the high priest. So much so that they didn't even want to be like, caught carrying this money in their pockets. Uh, like Jewish patriots would not carry a denarius with them. And they, they really didn't have to. There were other less offensive coins that they could use. So it's funny that Jesus, by asking for a denarius, is in a sense calling them out. Like whoever handed him that coin would have been exposed as a very unpatriotic Jew for even having one on him. And Jesus takes the coin and he looks at it and he says, who is this on this coin? Caesar, they say. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give to God the things that are God's. Typically, this line is used in conversations about the proper role of government. 
for example, during early COVID, when government was telling churches not to gather, people would go to this passage and they would make an argument one way or another about whether that was appropriate. And I'm not saying that, that that's a totally unhelpful use of this passage, but I am saying that Jesus isn't primarily giving a defense here for the separation of church and state or religious liberty or something like that. Primarily, Jesus is saying to them, whose image is on this coin? Whose image is on you? Genesis 1.26 tells us that God made humanity in his image. Caesar's image is imprinted on this coin. God's image is imprinted on you. Caesar's image is on this coin. Jesus says, okay, no big deal. Yeah, sure, whatever. Who cares? Give it to Caesar. But God's image is on you. Are you giving yourself to God? Are you submitting wholly to him? Jesus answers in a way that escapes the trap. He's neither pro-Rome nor a zealot, and his elusiveness leaves, leaves the people, verse 17 says, utterly amazed. But more importantly than escaping the trap, Jesus gets their eyes back on God. Who's your authority, Rome or Jerusalem? Neither. God is. Give to God what is God's. God is the sole authority over the individual. Not Rome, not Jerusalem, not the United States, not your boss, not even your parents or your family. God is. And Christ claims to be God in the flesh. Christ is the ultimate authority over both the church and the individual. Now, does that ring in your ears as good news or bad news? Does that sound to you like a beautiful, joyful relief or a scary, oppressive-sounding burden? Here's the thing. Every single person has someone or something that they look to as ultimate authority in their life. Globally, historically, there, there's been basically two big approaches to this. Traditional cultures, both in the past and in many parts of the world today, view authority as something that's external to the self. It's something that comes to you from outside. It comes from your community, like, for example, your, your family, your nation, or your religious community. Modern Western cultures, on the other hand, believe authority comes from inside. So nobody outside ultimately gets to tell me what to do. I look to myself internally. Specifically, I submit to my own desires. Now, I could spend time critiquing the traditional view, and it's certainly not perfect. But if we're honest, every single story that our modern culture tells is already critiquing that story. And probably nobody in here believes it. So I'm just not going to spend time on that. Our culture celebrates the internal view of authority. Our heroes are people who flout the expectations and the demands of their oppressive parents, their oppressive leaders, or their oppressive religious upbringing, all guided by what? By the inner light of the soul, by their heart, by their desires. And this sounds really good. It sounds freeing. I submit to my own desires over and against what people outside tell me. Yes, please, I'd love to do that. Submit to my own desires over against the teachings of some first century preacher named Jesus. Yeah, it sounds so freeing. But is it really? Your own desires and affections and impulses may sound like a much better authority than Jesus, but I think there's some major, major flaws with this approach. First, our desires are fickle. You know this. Like, what do I want for dinner, tacos or salad? Do, I, do we want to watch a rom-com or action-adventure? Do I want to choose this major or that major? Do I like this guy or don't I? Am I sure I married the right person? 
should I call up that girl from high school or college? Do I even want to be married anymore? Try submitting to your desires and paying attention to their demands for a month or a year or five years, and you'll find very quickly that you're tangled up in knots because they keep moving the goalposts on you. Our desires are not only fickle, they also entice us to follow them into disaster. If we submit to our desires, they will lead us into disaster and captivity. It sounds freeing, but it's not. There's a, an old Dave Matthews song called Big-Eyed Fish. Uh, it's sort of a parable about how your desires, if, if they're not checked, can lead you to disaster, to places where you never thought they would go. And so it, it tells a story about a fish that desperately wants to be a bird and fly above the sea, so one day it catches a big wave and, and, and flops up onto the shore. But of course it can't fly because it's a fish. It also can't breathe because it's a fish. The Last verse is about a little monkey sitting up in his monkey tree. One day decided to climb down and run off to the city, but look at him now, lost and tired, living in the street, as good as dead, you see. Do what a monkey does. Stay up your tree. This sort of thing happens to us all the time. We follow our desires to places where we never expected them to take us, places like loneliness and family dysfunction and one bad relationship after the next. Our desires promise freedom, but they lead us to captivity and disaster. They also lead us to decisions that harm other people. If traditional cultures erase the individual for the sake of the whole, modern Western cultures erase the whole for the sake of the individual. The most important thing that we can do, we're told, is to submit to our own desires, even if it means that it costs other people. <clears throat> One of the champions of this today in American culture the last several, several years is Glennon Doyle. Glennon Doyle is an author uh, who several years ago sort of publicly told the story of her fight to stay in a difficult marriage, uh, to stay with a difficult spouse, and how it was worth all the hard work and sacrifice to stay in that relationship. And not long after that, she totally reversed course, and she uh, left that marriage and married U.S. women's soccer star Abby Wambach, and she was celebrated as a hero all along the way. Why? Because she was true to herself. Now, she's a champion for doing exactly what she did. Her, her recent book, Untamed, even goes so far as, as creatively retelling the story of Eve taking the forbidden fruit from the tree in the garden, not as a tragedy, but as a, a, a triumph of self-assertion over against oppressive uh, rulers and authorities. And all other comments aside, the thing that sticks to me most is this haunting question, what about her kids? What about her three children? Was it good for them that she publicly left her husband for another person? Did, did her telling the story and getting rich and famous from book deals, did her submission to her own desires help her children? Or were they just collateral damage? Our desires lead us into decisions that absolutely fail to factor in the realities of other people. And we do irreparable harm in the process. Our desires also promise us that if we follow them, we'll be fulfilled. But they don't make good on their promise. How many men have had midlife crises and, and affairs and left their, husband, or their wives and, and felt happier and better on the other side? Like how often do you, after your third bowl of ice cream or your fourth hour of Netflix, get up and think, I feel so much better about myself now that I've made that decision? Very rarely. Nobody does. We don't feel better when we submit to our desires. It's fleeting. Our desires cannot make good on their promises. 
Fifth and final major problem with submitting to our desires, desires, they demand that we sacrifice everything for them. And that's really it at the end of the day, right? That's what it comes down to. Our, our desires demand that we sacrifice our families, our freedom, our margin, our self-control, our mental or physical health. They demand that we lay everything on the altar. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that desire is an inherently bad thing. God gave you desires. Desires can be good, but in a fallen world and sinful humanity, we have some good desires and we have lots of bad desires. And even our good desires are out of whack. We desire some good things too much and other good things not enough. And for all those reasons, your desires cannot be trusted with something as important as your obedience and submission. Your desires should not be submitted to, they should be brought into submission. To what? To Christ. Desire sounds like a great authority, but in the end, there's no more abusive master. Jesus is so much better. Jesus is not fickle like your desires. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't keep moving the goalposts. He's steadfast. You know what you're getting when you come to him. You know you're always going to find him. And by his very nature as God, he is unable to change. Jesus does not entice us to follow him into disaster or captivity like our desires do. He left everything and came and sacrificed himself to save you from that disaster. Jesus doesn't lead us into decisions that harm others. He calls, us, he calls us to live in a way that's glorifying to him, that's good for us, and that's good for our neighbors. And it turns out that that's a three-for-one deal. Like, we don't have to choose between those three things. Jesus doesn't leave us unfulfilled. He's the only one who can truly fulfill us. Augustine was right when he prayed famously, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The other day I was cutting up an apple for Lydia in the kitchen for a snack, and I grabbed it out of the fridge and in the little Kroger bag, and I took it out of the bag, and I rinsed it, and I chopped it up, and I put the scraps back in the bag, and I picked it up to put it in the garbage, and immediately all the scraps just fell through the bottom of the bag, uh, and Lydia got a good kick out of that, but also it was a picture of the human heart. Our hearts are like that bag with a hole in the bottom, and we can pursue every single thing that promises to fulfill us, sex, money, power, career, family, freedom, and all of them will just plop right through the bottom of our hearts, leaving us just as empty as we already were, but a little more disillusioned in the process. Jesus gives us a new bag that doesn't have a hole in the bottom of it. He gives us a new heart, and he comes to fulfill it perfectly. Jesus made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. The last reason that Jesus is so much better as an authority than your desires are is that your desires can't die for you. They demand that you sacrifice everything for them, but Jesus sacrificed everything for you. Who has authority over the individual, Jerusalem or Rome? That's the question. Pay taxes to Caesar or don't? Jesus says you're missing the point. Neither I am your authority. And that's really good news because Jerusalem didn't die for you and Rome didn't die for you, but I did. The father sent him into the world just like the man who planted the vineyard sent his son and the people put him to death. They rejected him and killed him, but he didn't stay dead. The father raised him up 
And the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Because Jesus was willing to go to the cross and submit to death, God raised him up and put him in the position of authority over all things. And from there, he says, I am the head of the church. I am the head of your life. Do you receive me? Do you see that? Are we seeing Jesus as the authority of this church? Do you see him as the authority of your life? And if you don't, do you at least see how beautiful it would be if the person that was at the head of all things was somebody who loves you so much that he's willing to die for you? Like, isn't that so much better than, than submitting to some other authorities? Have your, have your desires left you disillusioned and burnt out from not fulfilling their promises? Jesus, and Jesus alone is the ultimate authority, and that is good news because Jesus and Jesus alone is good and perfect and sacrificial authority. Church, let's live our lives in submission to him.